Well, today's message is entitled, Waking Up the Neighbors. Now, as I say that phrase, waking up the neighbors, it probably conjures up some memories for us. Perhaps uh, some good ones, but also some bad ones. We've maybe had bad neighbors in, in our past. That the neighbor with the insistent dog that will does not stop barking at all hours of the night. Perhaps we have that neighbor with the truck with a loud exhaust system and he decides to go to work at 5 a.m. every day and you don't need to go to work until a little later. But every morning, up it goes and up the whole neighborhood wakes as he heads off to work. Perhaps you've had that neighbor that doesn't go to work at 5 a.m., but you have that neighbor that has the parties that go till 5 a.m. and the neighborhood is being woken up by bad neighbors. Nadine and I have had pretty good neighbors over the years. We've had a few bad neighbors, I guess you could say. Uh, when we were first married, we were obviously excited as newlyweds to get our first condo together. And, and as we came back from our honeymoon and started moving into this, this condo together, we had these dreams of what it was going to be like to live here in our new home, in this new community, with new friends around us we were hoping to make. And so that first night, we get in there, and we, we move all the boxes, and we unpack what we can. And, you know, one of the first responsibilities is to build the beds, because you got to have somewhere to sleep that night. And so build the beds, and we put sheets on them. And exhausted, around 1 a.m., we climb into bed, just wiped. And as we lay there, staring at the ceiling... Directly above us, in the suite above us, the 1 a.m. silence is broken by Krista Berg's number one 1986 hit, Lady in Red. <laughs> At maximum volume, on repeat, over and over. This guy loved that song over and over and over again. And we just stare at each other thinking, is this our new life with this neighbor above us? It went on for about an hour and then a few nights repeated itself in the weeks ahead. We moved to our first house, and we thought, hey, we'll have some new neighbors when we get to this new place. And we move in, and just a few weeks later after going in, it was not a new house by any means, and, and, and the fence was about as old as the house, and a windstorm came through and blew the fence over. So I'm thinking, well, here's a chance to meet the neighbor, because we have to have a conversation now about this fence that needs to get rebuilt. And so he actually came to me first. I thought, this is fantastic. We have a good neighbor. He comes over, and he says... Mark, and he introduced himself, introduced myself. He says, Mark, we need to build that fence. So how about this weekend? Let's go build that fence this weekend. I'll pay for half, you pay for half. I'll do half the work, you do half the work. We'll bang this thing out together. I thought, we have a fantastic neighbor. And so the day comes, and sure enough, we pick up the wood. We drill the holes. We start building this fence together. And then my cell phone rings, and it's a friend who wants to take me golfing. Suddenly, I turned into the bad neighbor because I suddenly had an emergency, and I actually did confession, I went golfing and I left him to finish the fence. So sometimes we're the bad neighbor and sometimes it's the guy above us who is the bad neighbor. But, but sometimes we actually have good neighbors as well. That, that neighbor who will give us the proverbial cup of sugar, who will mow the lawn, your lawn and theirs together, who you know you can trust your house when you go on vacation. The type of neighbor you actually don't mind if they wake you up in the middle of the night because you have a good relationship we had some friends uh, a few years back, they moved on now to a different city, but uh, Sandy and Sheila, wonderful people who were part of our church and part of a small group, and, and a lot of people in their small group lived within a couple blocks of their home. Well, one night at 3 a.m., their house caught on fire. 
and, and they had to immediately evacuate the house. They woke up not early into the blaze, far enough into the blaze that it was an emergency rush to get out of the house. And at 3 a.m., they found themselves in the situation of, well, what do we do? The, the fire trucks are here, but, but it's cold, and, and they, had a, they had a baby at the time, and they needed somewhere to go. Well, they were able to go two blocks over to knock on the door of somebody in their small group, and the people welcomed them in with open arms. Good neighbors. You see, having neighbors and having community is an important part of life, especially when we find ourselves in these times of need. That's why there's commercials, like, you can probably finish this line for me, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. These things resonate with us because we know these are needs we have. And it's incredibly valuable to have a neighbor, to have a community where no matter what happens, no matter when it happens, you have permission to knock on that door 24-7. You know, Jesus once told a parable about neighbors, a parable he told to his disciples about waking up their neighbors in a time of need. And it's found in Luke chapter 11. And he said this to his disciples one day. He said, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine has come on a journey and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside says, don't bother me. The door's already closed. It's locked. My children and I are in bed. I, I can't get up and give you anything. Jesus continues, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, you might be wondering what's going on here in this, in this parable. What in the world is this parable about? Waking up neighbors for bread, for visitors in the middle of the night? What's the spiritual principle in that, that we can, we can, that heavenly principle that comes down to earth that we can relate to and apply to our lives? What, what is this parable about? And in part answer to that question is Jesus is talking about prayer. He's talking about teaching his disciples to pray. See, the gospel of Luke, more than any of the other gospels, presents Jesus as a man of prayer. At some of the most significant moments in Jesus' ministry, Luke shows him praying. At Jesus' baptism, Jesus is praying. When he selects the 12 disciples, he's praying. At the transfiguration in the Garden of Gethsemane upon the cross, Luke shows Jesus at prayer. But Luke also weaves in other aspects of Jesus' prayer life, and he presents him as this man who would get away for quiet times just to be alone with God, just, just to commune with God, where, where Jesus had this rhythm of life, where prayer was part of the natural rhythms of how he did life. And on one of these occasions, when, when Jesus had slipped away a little bit to have this private prayer time in Luke chapter 11, where that parable is found. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 11, please feel free to do so. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 844. And we see that in one of these times when Jesus slips away for private prayer, Luke says that the disciples see Jesus and they come to him and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. That's in verse 1 through 4 of Luke chapter 11. And if you're with us this spring, you know that what Jesus taught them was the Lord's Prayer. And now what we talked about earlier this spring was sort of the more familiar, longer version of the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6. But as you recall, the Lord's Prayer was a model of prayer. 
It was an example of this is how you should pray. And, and what Jesus was trying to say is he was trying to point out that when you pray, it's important to acknowledge that, that we have a dependence upon our Heavenly Father. We need to focus our hearts. We need to focus our minds upon our Heavenly Father, be seeking Him to acknowledge and glorify Him and, and, and come to terms with our need or our dependence upon Him. Now, as Jesus taught them this prayer, what they heard was probably what they wanted. It was sort of this rote prayer that they could hear, they could memorize, and they could then come together as a group and, and recite uh, word for word over and over again, which is pretty common for the Jewish style of prayer at the time. But in Luke's version, in chapter 11 here, Jesus doesn't end the teaching at the end of the Lord's Prayer like he does in Matthew chapter 6. In Luke 11, Jesus continues to teach on prayer. And after the disciples come and say, teach us to pray, and Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer, Jesus continues to teach them with this parable. And as the disciples had come to understand already through many examples previously, is that the deeper lesson, the application of the teaching was most likely going to be found in the story. And so they listen intently to the story of the man at midnight who comes by to knock on his neighbor's door. And as we're going to see today as well, is that in this parable, in this teaching for the followers of Jesus Christ, he is issuing a call for all of those who consider themselves to be a follower of Jesus to pray with boldness and with persistence, confident that we have a loving Father in heaven who wants to give us his very best, who will give us his very best for those who have enough faith to ask. So, what is the burden? What is the struggle what is perhaps the difficult situation or the question plaguing your life right now? Whatever that may be now, or, or maybe you've just emerged from it, or you can feel it kind of brewing on the horizon. Whatever that may be, let me ask you a question. Do you bring those things before the Lord in prayer? Now, I'm going to hazard a guess here and say most of you say yes. Yes, when I have those challenges, those burdens, those temptations, those difficult situations, yes, I bring those things before the Lord in prayer. And I believe you, but let me ask you a follow-up question. Would you say you are persistent in that prayer? Is it sort of a one-and-done kind of a prayer? Or are you persistent in that prayer? When you think of the words that you pray when you bring that before the Lord, would you acknowledge or would you, would you proclaim those to be bold requests of God? Bold, persistent prayers in those situations. Because that's the challenge for us today as we go through this parable. As we walk through this teaching, I'd like to ask you to keep in mind an answer to this question. What situation in your life right now requires a bold prayer of great faith. Think about that for a second and hold that idea in mind as we walk through this parable. What situation in your life right now requires a bold prayer of great faith? Keep that in mind as we look back at the parable. Now, it's easy to miss what's happening in this parable because this one in particular is really couched in some, some historical, contextual, cultural going-ons and language that's a little bit different from what we have. So let me share a few bits of information with you that'll help you understand more fully what Jesus was talking about in this particular parable. 
First of all, we need to understand the food system of the culture of this ancient Near Eastern culture in which Jesus lived. There was no sense of having food on hand. There wasn't really food preservatives. If you made some bread, within a day or so, it's going to go moldy. If you bought some fish and it wasn't salted, which was pretty much the only thing available at the time, if it wasn't salted, it would go bad sooner than your bread would go bad. This idea of having a stocked pantry of having two weeks' worth of supply of bread in the freezer just in case you forget to go to the store, that didn't exist back in this time. They would bake their bread daily. They would go to the market to buy what they needed on a daily basis for the most part, prepare it that day, so at the end of the day, there was really nothing left, which typically wasn't a problem because it's the end of the day. We're going to go to sleep, and then we'll do it all over again tomorrow, which is where we get this idea of give us this day our daily bread. It was a daily occurrence to to hunt and to find food. There wasn't a pantry or a freezer that they could just go to because a friend arrived. Now, secondly, we need to keep in mind that this is what you refer to as a shame-honor society, meaning your actions weigh heavily upon you and your family's reputation in the community around you. And what you do and don't do will either lead to you and your family being considered honorable people or it can lead towards you being disgraced. And this culture in particular held hospitality to extremely high regard, to the point where it was a duty. It was a duty that you would welcome all visitors to your home. It didn't matter the time when they arrived. It didn't matter the situation in their life or your life when they arrived. It almost didn't even matter who they were. If they came under your roof, you were required to extend hospitality to that person. And as would often happen, people would travel to go visit others or they would travel and they would have these pit stops along there. They needed shelter and food for the night. And it was common to travel in the evenings or at night to avoid the heat of the day. And that appears to be what this particular friend did, is that he traveled in the evening and arrived rather late to avoid the heat of the day. It seems he also arrived rather unexpectedly. And so when you are in this spot of an unannounced late-night travel arriving at your home and you have no food and you're required to show hospitality, what are you going to do? You have no food. There's no 24-hour grocers. There's no drive through that you can go through to find something. So this man decides to make a bold move. He makes a bold move and he gets up and he goes to his neighbor's house in the middle of the night to ask for food. Now, this was a very significant request, not because he was just looking for food, not because of the lightness of the hour, but because of the situation in which people lived in those days. You see, in order for this man to open his door to even slip some bread out was a rather big problem because these people tended to live in one-room houses. And so when nighttime came, you would push everything to the side, you would unroll your mats, and mom, dad, Susie, Johnny would all lay down side by side in this one room and sleep. And so in order for this man to open the door to slip some bread out the window would require not just him to wake up and get up, it would also require his whole family to wake up, his whole family to get up. They'd have to roll up their mats so they could open the door to slip out some bread. And so the man's answer is no. No, everyone's sleeping. The door's locked. You can also see that as the door is blocked as well, there's nothing I can do. So you now find yourself at a point of decision. You have a guest at your home. You have no food in your home. You have no food in your hands. You can either walk back home quietly 
apologetically, empty-handed, or you can persist. You can keep on knocking, you can keep on asking, you can keep on searching and seeking until you find a solution to your problem. And that's Jesus' main point in this parable. And he reveals this to us in verse 8, where he tells us that even though he will not get up to give you bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Because of your shameless audacity is a key word in that passage. What does that mean? Shameless audacity. Well, the Greek word that's used there originally is really difficult to render in the English language. The the closest word we can come to isn't helpful because you've probably never used it before. The closest English word to this Greek word is importunity. Anyone ever used the word importunity before? I used it twice this week in preparing this message, and that's probably the extent of where I've used importunity before. But importunity means to to persist to the point of annoyance, is what that word means. So you can use that in your vocabulary this week. Importunity, your importunity is excessive. You can use that this week in conversation. And it's based upon two qualities. It's based upon the quality of boldness, meaning that you would even dare to have the nerve to ask. You'd have the nerve to make such a grand request and brazenness. This brazenness where you kind of set your pride aside for a minute and say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to solve this problem. This boldness, this brazenness to put aside pride to do whatever it takes to make the big request with persistence, shameless audacity. And so with shameless audacity, he keeps banging on the door louder and louder. He gets his voice louder and louder. He doesn't care if he wakes up the family. He doesn't care if he wakes up the whole neighborhood. He is going to persist in solving this problem. And so in this parable that Jesus is sharing with his disciples, he's explaining to them that when you have a need, when you have that burden that struggle, that challenge, that temptation, that moment where you don't know what you're going to do next, boldly, persistently cry out to God. Be persistent in the petition to the point of importunity, to the point where you don't just wake up the neighbors, you wake up the whole neighborhood with your request. And then Jesus drives this point home for us in the next verse where he declares the outcome, the promise that if we will do this, if we will have this boldness and this persistence in prayer, he says this. He says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and that door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds. And the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son gives, asks you for a fish, you would give him a snake instead? Or if he asks you for an egg, you would give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your father in heaven knows to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, this is the promise of the prayer. This is the promise. This is the assurance that we can have when we are praying with this bold persistence to our Heavenly Father. This is the promise. That if we seek, we will find. If we ask, we will receive. 
If we knock, the door will be opened. But here, there's a problem with this, right? Because I ask people about this. Is this your experience? When you think about your prayer life, is this what you're experiencing? And on a regular basis, when, when I ask people that question, they, they say no. That's not really what I experience. At times I find people who say, you know, I, I tried Christianity. I tried kind of the Christian thing. I heard the promises. I claimed them. I prayed, but then nothing. Or other people will say, you know, I, I believe in God. That's not a question. I, I believe in God, and, but I, I'm, really, I'm really not sure about this whole prayer thing. I do it. I do it because I'm supposed to. It's, it's my duty, right? It's the responsibility of all Christians to pray. And so, so I do it, but, you know, if I'm honest, I don't really expect a whole lot to come of it. These are sometimes more often what I, what I hear from people as opposed to, to seeking and finding, asking, receiving, knocking, and the door being open. But I want to tell you that, that the promise of an open door lies before the disciples who need not be too shy to ask. You see, when we approach God, it is critical that we keep in mind, and when we understand, start to understand prayer a bit, we need to first understand who it is that we are praying to. Consider this. If you believe, if you believe God to be worthy to bring your needs before, if you think he is worthy to bring your concerns, your burdens, your, your sins to, if you're in a situation where you know that his presence and his power is the very thing that's going to make a world of difference. If you believe that he loves you. If you believe that he knows who you are, that, that he created you. If you believe that he wants to guide you and protect you. Considering all of that, does it not make sense that we can trust him to decide how to answer our prayers. If, if we think he is worthy, if we think he is powerful enough, if we believe in his love, his goodness, and his knowledge, can we not also trust him to know how best to respond when we pray? That doesn't mean we shouldn't pray, but it means we need to understand not just to whom we're praying, but who has the authority in that. Because the promise is not that we get whatever we ask for. The promise is not that we get whatever we want. That's not prayer. That's actually more in line with that best magic, where if I say the right words, poof, I get what I want. That's more in line with that, at best. Because at worst, we can put ourselves in a spot of saying, you know, God, maybe I know better. Maybe I have the power. Maybe I should be the one deciding. And I prayed for it, so I decide, yes, that this needs to happen. You see, often the struggle in prayer is not a struggle against God. Often I think the struggle in prayers is his struggle with us. You see, because just as a caring parent will at times protect their child by not granting requests, so too a loving, divine, paternal parent has the wisdom to say, hey, I know what's best. Can you trust me? And in response, sometimes he says yes to the prayers. And, and he says, yes, that is fully in line with my will. That's fully in line with what I'm trying to do in your life and in the life of the world around you. And, and, and I take great joy. He says, he says, Mark, I take joy in, in wanting to share that with you and say yes to your prayers. Other times, you know, I'll pray for something and, and I'll get the sense of, eh, not yet. 
It's in the right direction. You're, you're tracking in the right way, man. Keep going that direction. But, but it's just not time yet. But keep praying. Keep moving that direction and you will see incredible things happen. And other times, it's a no. It's like God says, Mark, I, I know what's on your heart. And, and I know that's what your mind is sharing and wants. And, but you got to trust me, man. I, I can see how this thing plays out. And, and I know your heart and your mind think it's the best thing, but, but I'm a little further up the mountain. I can kind of see what's a little further down the trail, and, and, and I need you to trust me. You might get mad. You're probably going to stomp your feet a little bit. But i got to say no. But do we trust him in any of those situations? You see, prayer begins with God's desire for us to share our hearts and our fears and our victories with him. And he, in turn, wants to share himself with us, his very best with us. That quite often comes through in the gift of the Holy Spirit who, who comes into our lives to convict us of things that we need to move different directions on. Who comes to counsel us in moments where we're just not sure which way to go or our hearts say go this way, but God says no, we need you to go this way. But he doesn't just comfort and counsel, he'll convict and counsel, he also comforts in those moments where we need that rest and that peace in our lives as well. His very best is what he shares with us. And it gives us the ability to start to see what he's doing in the world around us and to understand sometimes why it feels like we may not have an answer or why the answer didn't go the way we wanted. Do we trust him? You see, Jesus issues a call for us to boldly pray with persistence, confident that our loving Father in heaven wants to give us his very best, but his very best doesn't always line up with what we think is the very best. And so there's this question of, will we accept God's definition of the very best? even though it doesn't maybe line up with our expectations. And therein lies the struggle. Therein lies the struggle that begs the question, are we willing to humbly submit ourselves to the will of God and to trust that he is further up the mountain, that he can see a little further into the horizon, but he's not only further up the mountain, he cannot only see further into the horizon, he is the author and the creator of the mountain and the horizon. And so can we trust him to lead us and to provide for us in the right way? See, there's a few lessons from this parable that we can apply to our lives as we think about, about prayer in this context. I want to finish by summarizing three of them for you. And the first one is this, is that prayer is not an option. Prayer is a necessity. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I guess all that's left to do is pray? Like, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that I, I've kind of done all that I can do? It's out of my hands now. I hope somebody else comes up with something. Because our last resort is to pray. But here's my challenge with that phrase. Is that why would we start under our own power when the power of prayer was always at hand? See, I, I want to suggest to you that prayer should not be our last resort. It should be our first line of attack when we find ourselves in situations. It should not be our last resort, but our first line of attack. You remember, uh, it's a bit out of date now. There's not too many youth here today, so that's good. A, a few years back, there was this guy named Popeye in the comic books and cartoons. Remember Popeye? Popeye had a problem. He always got into trouble. 
he'd always get into fights. Every, every cartoon, every comic strip, it seemed to end with Popeye and Bluto having some sort of dust up, right? And Popeye, he was a big, big, strong sailor man, right? But, but he would end up losing the fight. And when it all seemed like all was lost, all hope was gone, I need you to get me some spinach, right? And he'd find some spinach and he'd pound back a can of spinach and his muscles would pump up and he'd come back and he'd, and he'd pound Bluto. Problem solved. We don't see those cartoons anymore because they're probably not politically correct, but because you can't have violence in cartoons. But remember those ones, right? Here, here's the question. Here's the challenge. How different would that have gone if Pluto or if, if Popeye had learned to like spinach a little more? If, if he's walking down the street and he sees Bluto across the road, you don't wait for the confrontation. You don't wait for the dust up when you're getting your butt kicked. He's like, I see that guy half a block away. I'm just going to pound some spinach now. I'm going to do this on the front end so that I'm prayed up, I'm geared up, I'm powered up if something should come along. You see, I don't want prayer to be the last resort that we have available to us. I want to challenge us to see it as our first line of attack, regardless of what may be going on in our lives. Because prayer is not an option. Prayer is a necessity in our lives. If we're going to have a growing relationship with God, we must engage in prayer. If we're going to have the ability to understand what God is doing in the world around us and in our lives, we must be engaged in prayer. If we're going to be able to allow God's power and influence to have any impact in the lives and the world around us, we must be engaged in prayer. It is not an option. It is a necessity. But secondly is this is that when we pray out of the sense of necessity, God is not offended by our boldness nor by our cry of desperation. You cannot pray so bold that you offend God. See, God is willing to listen in all aspects of lives. Through those normal seasons of life where not much is going on, but you just thank him for the glorious day that we're having. To the extreme cries of desperation in the down moments, God is listening and ready to hear your prayers and receive them. Jesus described this as, as God's deep willingness to respond to the prayers of his children. You see, the guarantee is, is this, is that he's more willing to respond than sometimes we are to ask. The limits of the outcome is not limited by God's ability. It's not limited by his willingness. Sometimes it's limited by our lack of boldness and our lack of imagination. Because nothing is too big. Nothing is too audacious. Nothing is too faith-stretching for us to bring before God. Ephesians 3.20 tells us that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or all we can even imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. And so as we come before prayers, before the Lord with our prayers, persistence, yes. But consider the language we're using as well. Are we praying big enough? Are we praying bold enough? When we come pray for that family member or that friend that, that we would have the opportunity to invite them to Alpha. When we pray that God would somehow get a hold of their lives, are we praying for these dramatic, powerful moments when God would intervene in their life and, and help them to realize his, their need for him? When we're praying for our finances, are we just praying for the one bill in hand that we can't manage to get paid? Or are we saying, no, Lord, I pray that you would rich me, richly bless me to the point where I could show extravagant generosity to others and pour out your blessings from an overflowing of how much is coming? Do we pray for this deep love for God? Lord, help me to pray more regularly. Or do we pray for this deep, deep well 
of spiritual love for God that we would go deeper into his word and deeper into others' lives and deeper into the experience of the reality of daily life? Do we pray big prayers or are they just these momentary incidental prayers? Bold, persistent prayers. Pray big. Pray bold. I promise you God will not be offended by your boldness or by your cry of desperation. But see, prayer is not an option, it's a necessity. God will not be offended if you pray bold prayers. And thirdly, we need to keep on praying because we need to be persistent in those prayers. Recall what Jesus stated in in Luke chapter 11, verse 9, when he says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. The English translation misses the full meaning of this passage. There's persistence that is inherent to this verse. The way it could literally be translated is keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Keep on waking up the neighbors. If we look at the way that it's written in the original language, it says keep on asking and seeking and keep on knocking. Keep on doing this to the point where you're waking up the neighbors. There's persistence inherent to it. And we see examples of this in the Bible. Going back to, to Abraham in Genesis 18. When Abraham starts bargaining with God for, for the lives of, of his nephew and his nephew Lot's family and, and when he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, God starts, he starts bargaining with God. Well, what about this? What if you find this many people? Will you save it then? What if you find this many people? There's persistence in his request. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul pleads three times for this thorn to be removed from his flesh. There's persistence in the request. In Matthew 26, when when Jesus is praying in the garden, he asks three times for that cup to be removed from him. There's persistence and boldness in all of these requests, which is the message that Jesus is trying to convey from the parable. You see, not only does Jesus instruct us to pray with boldness and persistence, we're surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses who have done that very thing in their own lives. Now, the answers they received did not always come right away. Sometimes the answers they received said, not yet. Other times the answer they received was no. And there's other prayers that God answers throughout Scripture and throughout the lives of the people that are sitting in this very place right now. But in all of those situations where it was yes, no, or not yet, they had faith. They kept praying. They kept asking. They kept seeking. They kept knocking. They kept walking the path of faith trusting that God knew what was best for them in the days ahead. Which brings us back to the opening question. What situation in your life requires a prayer of great faith? We've all got something. A struggle, a burden, a situation we find ourselves in that requires a prayer of great faith. And as you ponder that question, I just want to invite the worship team to come back on the platform with me. And I want to invite you all to prepare to bring that care before the Lord as we come to prayer here in just a moment. You see, whatever your answer to that question is, whatever burdens you may carry for yourself, whatever burden you carry for another person, now is the opportunity to bring that before the Lord. But not in a timid, weak prayer, but to find language, that bold language of prayer, just that you could picture yourself banging on the door of heaven petitioning God, waking up the neighbors with that importunity in the need you find in your life. Now, it could be that there's people who are here today who aren't even sure if God exists and prayer is kind of a foreign thing to them. If you find yourself in that situation, I invite you to share that with God. 
to honestly just share that and say, God, I don't even know if you're there. To be bold enough to pray that. I challenge you to do that with an open heart, with an open mind, and see how he reveals himself to you. You got nothing to lose and everything to gain. So I want to invite you now, if you bow your heads with me as we seek God for asking for guidance, for provision, for comfort, as we bring our prayers before him with open hearts and open minds. Heavenly Father, as your people pray with openness to, to what you have been doing, want to do, and are yet to do in their lives. I pray, Lord, that whether it's the first time or, or just once more yet again that, that we are bringing these prayer requests before you, God, that we would seek your gracious goodness. God, we boldly claim the promise of Scripture that you are a loving Father who hears our prayers, that you desire to give us your very best, that whatever the need may be, whatever the challenge is, whatever situation that your people are lifting up to you at this time, Lord, I ask for your Holy Spirit to comfort, to counsel, to convict where needed so that our desires would either melt away or fall into be in line with yours, Lord. God, we pray for relief from the weight of burdens that people may feel in this place. God, we pray for the freedom from bondage that temptation has carried for too long. We pray for victory in people's lives, Father. We pray for peace for the oppressed. And God, we pray that in the days ahead that may the spirit that convicts and prompts would continue to lead us to bring all of our needs before you in prayer with shameless audacity that we will become a people of bold, persistent prayer, a people that seek, that ask, and that find. Lord, I pray that these prayers that we pray now and in these days ahead would transform us according to your goodness and according to your glory. Amen.